Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the IT news of the week with a variable degree of snarkiness. I'm your host, Stephen Foskett, and joining me today, since Tom is out at Security Field A9, is my guest co-host from the Art of Network Engineering, Mr. Tim Bertino. Welcome to the show, Tim. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. So, Tim, um, uh, I, I know it sounds like I'm shouting at you, but that's just because it's International Caplocks Day. Yeah, I, you know, I'm usually very careful with uh, how I use cap, caps lock because you never know how somebody's going to interpret that on the other end. Indeed, indeed. Well, I guess uh, we'll try to keep the cap locks down um, and we'll try to introduce the next story. But I guess, um, you know, let's dive into the news of the week. Definitely, Stephen. I find this first story pretty interesting, and I definitely see how it could ruffle some feathers. So IBM Red Hat has placed the source code for Red Hat Enterprise Linux behind a paywall, limiting access to subscribers and leaving CentOS Stream as the only public repository for the source code. While IBM Red Hat justifies the move as a means to protect their developers' work, it has generated controversy and concerns among those outside the company. This certainly has to be community up in arms, has to have them up in arms. Absolutely. And um, that's what we're seeing. Uh, my friend uh, Jeff Geerling has been particularly outspoken about this. Um, essentially, uh, Red Hat uh, Linux, even though uh, RHEL uh, RHEL is available uh, for open source uh, or open use, not open source use, uh, the source code for RHEL is now part of the commercial on the commercial side, uh, whereas CentOS uh, CentOS Stream, which used to be, remember, the open source version of of RHEL, is now the, um, I guess, tip of the spear development release. And that is still open. Uh, but once it becomes, um, I guess, long-term stable and, and, and graduates to, to RHEL, it's no longer open uh, for all to see. This is a big problem uh, for the projects that use RHEL, um, especially projects that are derivatives. For example, Alma Linux and Rocky Linux, uh, which was uh, embraced as a replacement for CentOS when um, all this came down previously. Um, this uh, under understandable uh, that a company would want to do this, but at the same time, it's really, really against the, um, the tenets of open source, the beliefs of the open source community, and frankly, the uh, needs of many people and, and many users. Um, there are a lot of uh, outspoken critics of this decision. There are a lot of people quickly jumping ship. Uh, you can believe that the uh, folks over at Ubuntu are um, absolutely uh, crowing to anyone who will hear that they are still open and still supporting different uh, you know, open source use and, and derivatives and so on. And frankly, um, this kind of, in my mind, spells the end of the uh, the honeymoon when it comes to uh, Red Hat. Tim, a Microsoft internal presentation from June of last year was recently made public due to an ongoing FTC hearing. And it shows that Microsoft's desire to move uh, Windows 11 increasingly to the cloud is uh, gaining steam within the company. 
The goals here seem to be deliver improved AI services and provide streamlined device roaming experience for customers across different hardware platforms. Is uh, VDI uh, what they're talking about or is this some other cloud connected thing? I really interpret this as VDI. Now, I can't uh, I can't quite understand the AI hook benefits that they're putting into that. I see this as a virtual desktop push and let me kind of start with VDI in general. I absolutely love the concept of virtual desktops leveraging commoditized low cost uh really low resource heavy hardware to really just provide a um, a connecting point to a virtual desktop that's hosted somewhere else. On the business side, I completely love that being able to jump onto any different type of machine and know that I am connecting to the same virtual device, my same experience, um, any and every time. I, I love that concept. And I can definitely see why Microsoft would wanna do this because you start providing a virtualized desktop, you're you're hosting the compute, you're hosting the operating system. That's now a subscription-based license. And we all know that these vendors uh, really like that known recurring revenue that they can get. So I totally get um, where they're coming from. Where I think it could be difficult is gaining more adoption on the consumer side. Because right now, the, the whole purchase model is if somebody wants to go into a store, they're really just purchasing the device and it already has Windows on it. And you're paying for the license when you buy the device. Now, potentially going into that same electronic store and purchasing really just some hardware. And then maybe you're purchasing the subscription to your virtualized desktop while you buy it. I, I just think that that could be somewhat of a hurdle that uh, Microsoft would have to get over to get your general consumer on board with that kind of thing. Now, again, like I said earlier, I, I don't really understand yet the, uh, the potential AI hooks or AI play into this. I see this as really a subscription licensing play to get more users leveraging uh, Windows and virtual machines in the cloud. So Stephen, IBM is acquiring Aptio a company specializing in tracking and managing data in hybrid cloud environments for $4.6 billion in cash. The move aims to strengthen IBM's hybrid cloud services and provide customers with tools to optimize their IT investments. Aptio's platform will be integrated with IBM's IT automation software and AI platform to offer comprehensive technology investment management solutions. Tell me, Stephen, is this a major acquisition? Is this a big thing? Well, it's interesting. Um, first off, because IBM is acquiring a cloud-based uh, service. And, and, and so it shows what IBM's strategy is, which is to increasingly have a large number of cloud-based services. Um, the interesting aspect here, though, is that Aptio isn't just any uh, cloud-based service. Aptio is specifically... Uh, a service to track and manage um, spending and to optimize their use of IT assets. And in, it's very, very popular in the Fortune 100, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 kind of customers. 
um, basically big, big, big companies that have lots of IT investments, they leverage and, and, and rely on Aptio to tell them whether they're using that all of that investment properly. Well, uh, that now that uh, service is going to be in the hands of IBM, which is, of course, a company that would love to help them uh, use and manage their IT uh, properly. Um, maybe spend a little more on IBM stuff. I don't know. Um, so, so it's. I think it's a smart acquisition uh, for IBM. Um, I don't think that it's really going to impact the customers that much because, frankly, it, it, this product is everywhere. It's a, it's a huge and mature product. Uh, people seem to like it. Um, you know, I think that that this is a, a, a smart move overall and uh, sort of an inevitable move now that. Um, products like this are maturing and the industry is uh, starting to adopt cloud-based services for, for needs like um, IT spend. Cisco has announced that they intend uh, to purchase a company called Samnos, which produces broadband monitoring solutions. Now, you may not be familiar with Samnos, but they have products geared toward both service providers and consumers that show data around network performance and attempt to help resolve these issues quickly. Cisco plans to integrate this technology into earlier acquisitions, including um, field day favorite Thousand Eyes. Uh, what's going on here? Well, Stephen, I was one of those people that was not familiar with Samnos, so I had to do a little bit of research. And what it looks like is, is it's a solution that's used by internet service providers uh, in conjunction with consumers, they have multiple products that uh, is more geared toward, they have some that are geared toward the ISPs to be able to get monitoring data and understand information about their uh, customers' issues to be able to troubleshoot and help resolve problems. And then it, it does look like they have more uh, client-based solutions for consumers as well to be able to track, hey, you know, what really has been my internet speed, internet performance over the last month? And to me, I, I think that consumers could take that information back to the ISPs if they do see issues and say, hey, you're promising me this bandwidth. I'm according to your application, I'm only getting this. What's the deal? So I see that interesting. Definitely does seem like out of all of Cisco's products, it, it seems like the biggest play for Thousand Eyes. And, you know, Thousand Eyes is really, in my opinion, really taken off um, on the Cisco side. I will go as far to say that I, I think Thousand Eyes may be this decade's Meraki as far as uh, Cisco acquisitions. They really seem to bring a lot to the table and Cisco seems to be putting a lot of investment into it. Where I'm interested to see is how they're going to fully integrate this. It, it looks like that the uh, the Sam Knows organization has these agents, some of these agents that are actually in consumer grade gear. So like consumer grade routers that they the ISPs would um, would give out to customers. So if they can leverage that in Thousand Eyes to have even more uh, data points throughout the internet of performance issues, really getting that last mile coverage that isn't necessarily seen today can can potentially push Cisco's uh, their uh, print into the uh, the ISP space and really getting into the consumer space as well because visibility is is really a problem especially now that more and more people are working remote 
and people can be anywhere. And if they have issues, you need to be able to get out in front of it. And having these uh, endpoints out in more places, I think is a really interesting play. And I'm, I'm excited to see where this is going to go further integrating into Thousand Eyes. So Data Lakehouse developer Databricks is acquiring generative AI startup Mosaic ML for $1.3 billion to empower its customers in building and deploying AI models using their own data. Mosaic ML specializes in running AI models on minimal systems and training them with proprietary data, addressing the resource-intensive requirements and potential inaccuracies of large language models. Databricks aims to democratize AI by offering more accessible and cost-effective solutions, expanding its capabilities beyond massive GPU resources. How will this acquisition impact the worlds of AI and data combined? Yeah, I think this is a, a sign of the maturing of uh, a couple of industries. Uh, first off, the, the data lakehouse world that Databricks plays in uh, this was a new concept and is now, uh, frankly, a very uh, mature and accepted approach to dealing with large amounts of data. And as we saw previously with Databricks, uh, they were very interested in applying machine learning technologies, including large language models, to be able to query data more efficiently. And they've been working on democratizing access to these LLMs by producing their own LLM called Dolly. Now, uh, for those of you not in, in the know, Mosaic ML uh, was founded actually just a few years ago in 2021 uh, by Naveen Rao, who formerly managed Intel's AI products group. I've actually spoken uh, with uh, Naveen Rao uh, about AI while he was at Intel. and. Um, it's interesting that this uh, moving, you know, that this, this product is moving so quickly from a concept, which was basically, let's see if we can make uh, lightweight, portable, and yet highly functional uh, large language models that will run on, a, you know, a small uh, data center footprint, like a single GPU, or maybe even a CPU, we'll see, um, and, and to try to get that out into the market. It moved so quickly that here we are just a couple of years later, and this is being a, you know, a multi, you know, more than a billion dollar acquisition for Databricks. Um, I think that it makes a lot of sense for Databricks, but overall, as far as the industry goes, I think that's where this is more interesting because essentially what we're seeing is uh, this technology that has been touted, um, whether it's data lake houses or large language models or data warehouses or you know, as a service, all of this technology is getting real. And I think that overall, uh, the folks at Mosaic ML probably saw this as an opportunity to um, really bring the product to the next level instead of having it be sort of another um, sweet AI startup that who, who knows where it's going. Instead, uh, their easy, portable, lightweight, uh, large language models are gonna be available for use um, not only to Databricks customers, but it looks like uh, to the open source world. So uh, overall, this is a, a great acquisition for Databricks. Uh, it's great to see an exit um, so quickly for Mosaic ML. And also it would be great if this means that this technology gets into more hands. Cato Networks is launching a product to leverage its deep learning algorithms 
to find and block malicious command and control domains. The differentiator here is that Cato is striving to do this in a way that's faster than traditional methods of blocking these domains based on domain reputation. Uh, Tim, I'm not quite in the know here on this technology. Tell me more. Uh, what makes this approach interesting? So Stephen, staying out in front of threat actors is is obviously difficult. They are going to come up with different ways to stay a step ahead. And we're specifically here talking about uh, command and control. So workstations, devices getting infected with malware and then reaching out to uh, these command and control servers, these central points to check in, get instructions on what to do next to potentially carry out DDoS attacks or um, mass malware campaigns, that kind of thing. And the, it sounds like the way to get around that today from a defense standpoint is to gather data over time, understand behaviors, and then block access that way. And Cato's trying to take that a step further and figure out how they can leverage deep learning to be able to thwart these attacks early, much earlier on, much more quickly. And one of the things they bring up is that a lot of these, that what makes this difficult to defend against is a lot of these threat actors are using these algorithms, these uh, domain generating algorithms or these DGAs to create these just random domains that no threat algorithms really know about yet and try to go undetected for as long as possible. So this is what I think is differentiating Cato and what, or at least what makes it interesting is in terms of, in contrast to the, uh, the traditional mechanisms of just leveraging um, behavior over time and that they're actually trying to go after the DGA itself. So they're using their deep learning technology to figure out how some of these domain generating algorithms work so that they can put protections in place that customers can use to try to understand much more quickly, hey, I have a bunch of different machines that are going out to this, communicating out to this domain that looks to be malicious. So I thought leveraging you know, deep learning and machine learning to actually go after a, uh, a domain generating algorithm versus uh, looking at uh, reputation or behavior over time is a really interesting play. And I'm, uh, I I'm kind of excited to see where this ends up going. So Tim, now let's take a look at a closer look at a story that's uh, piqued my interest at least this week. And that is the release of the latest results from our friends over at ML Commons, uh, ML Perf version three. Uh, first off, Tim, uh, tell us a little bit overall um, to introduce the story. Sure thing, Stephen. So training 3.0 benchmark results show performance gains of up to 1.54x compared to six months ago and 33 to 49x improvement over the first round, driving innovation and energy efficiency in the industry. Intel's Habana Gaudi 2ML training engine competes with NVIDIA's offerings, boasting better performance than A100 and lower pricing than H100. NVIDIA, on the other hand, unveils their NEMO model with 
half a trillion parameters and expands the MLPerf training suite to include GPT-3 and a new recommendation engine. Their collaboration with CoreWeave showcases the superior performance of the H100, providing a 3.6x speed increase for GPT-3 compared to Intel Xeon and Gaudi 2. NVIDIA is also developing foundation models for their DGX cloud, collaborating with major players in the industry, and Intel is widely rumored to be developing its own Gaudi 2 as a service offering. Then there's the Tiny 1.1 inferencing benchmark, which saw over 150 results and performance improvements up to 1,000x. This is nuts, Stephen. What do you make of all this? There's a lot to unpack here, and um, I, I hope that uh, maybe you and I can kind of dig in here and, and look at the uh, what's going on in this ML world. I think the first thing that I would point out is that uh, MLPerf is, uh, as I've said before on the, on the rundown, a really great benchmark because it's based on real-world tests, sort of like uh, Geekbench, with, which people are familiar with, and other benchmarks that use real-world workloads and run them across a variety of platforms to see how the performance really is. Um, and now, uh, with uh, Training 3.0, uh, MLPerf even includes, yes, uh, the darling GPT-3. Um, as part of the training uh, exercises uh, for the benchmarks. Now, one of the things I think it's important to know, though, is that there's different flavors, uh, different tests, and not everyone submits results in every test. In fact, um, from what I understand, NVIDIA is the only company that actually uh, submitted across the spectrum, at least on the training side. Um, and of course, uh, there's also the tiny, which is not training, but inferencing, um, and emphasizes performance with low power on um, lots and lots of portable devices, like you mentioned. Um, all of these things have been just rocketing forward in terms of performance and efficiency. And it's a, a, really, a real battle here between NVIDIA, which is trying to defend their position as the um, undisputed heavyweight king of training, and Intel, which is desperate to show that they can be competitive in this offering. And then, of course, all these tiny platforms. So I don't know, Tim, which thing should we dive into first and, and what questions do you have? So I really kind of want to take a step back, Stephen, because for myself and maybe others that aren't as familiar with what's going on here, I kind of want to start step back and talk about some use cases. So is this really a play for for edge computing or is it more centralized? Where is the uh, the application starting here? Well, I would say that the Tiny is definitely client and edge. And in fact, that's really one of the most exciting aspects here. As you said, a thousand times performance improvement. Now that, that comes as no surprise because the devices we're talking about here are tiny, tiny devices. Uh, the models, the software has also improved, but the hardware is just leaps and bounds better than it ever was. Uh, think about, you know, your your phone, um, you know, you can run uh, machine learning tasks now. In fact, most uh, mobile operating systems, well, there's kind of two, but uh, anyway, they, they run um, machine learning tasks on the mobile devices. Same thing is true of devices like laptops, um, edge servers, and so on. And this is, as we're talking about every week on the Utilizing Edge podcast, um, especially inferencing, which is basically doing the work uh, with a 
uh, machine learning model is increasingly important all over the edge from sensor processing, video processing, audios, uh, all sorts of things, um, image recognition, all that stuff requires um, good machine learning performance that's balanced by low power. And that's really what the tiny is showing. Frankly, to me, I kind of don't care what the results are for this platform versus that platform. What I care about is seeing that these edge devices that you asked about are able to perform so much better and, um, and, and basically deliver real useful results with ML models in a low power envelope. That does make a lot of sense that this would be a large edge play because that's that sounds like a problem to me because you've got a lot of low power, um, you know, low code devices that are out on manufacturing floors or, or wherever else that need, uh, could have sensor data, could have data that needs to be processed and might need to be low latency. So rather than sending this data off to a processing engine somewhere else, uh, being able to do that locally or as close to the device as possible and, and leveraging low power to be able to do this level of machine learning, I, that seems like a huge play. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and that's really what we're seeing. And I think we're going to just see more and more of that. Intel is trying to compete with Habana Gaudi 2 for training, but also for Xeon. Does it make sense to use a general purpose CPU for ML training? Yeah, that, that's, I guess, kind of turning the page over to the, the training side of things. Um, this is a really weird um, uh, situation. So as you know, and as everybody can probably understand, um, uh, GPUs are really great for wide distributed tasks like machine learning processing. And I'm sure that most people are aware that um, uh, GPUs like NVIDIA and AMD and yes, Intel um, are really run laps around a regular CPU when it comes to machine learning, especially when it comes to training. Now, Intel has for a while now been pitching a really bizarre concept, which is, hey, how about instead of using a GPU for ML training, you use the Xeon CPU that you already bought and run your training tasks on that. And considering that that's like a hundred times slower, it may seem nonsensical to do that. But Maybe it makes sense. And um, we're seeing with every round of ML Perf that no, Xeon absolutely cannot compete with GPU in terms of overall performance and throughput. Um, but, but it's good enough that it could be used for ML training sort of as a, um, as a side, a side dish. And, you know, so the idea is, Basically, you say, oh, I got to I got to do a training run. Um, I'm going to leave this running while I get lunch or I'm going to leave this running while I'm in a meeting or I'm going to leave this running overnight or over the weekend. And the fact is, according to these ML Perf training results, that's actually a viable thing now. So the latest fourth generation Xeons, they've got specialized instructions. Um, they can actually do ML training in that sort of hour, few hours, overnight, over the weekend kind of um, kind of time frame, and you didn't buy anything. 
And that's actually a kind of an interesting use case. So yeah, um, even though it seems like crazy talk, uh, Xeon can be used for ML training. Yeah, it's an interesting use case and in, in really an interesting way to market it because we live in a world now where everything's at our fingertips and we seem to think we need everything at a moment's notice, but there are a number, like you mentioned, a number of tasks, a number of uh, jobs that that could just be run over time and essentially in the background as you're off doing other things. So yeah, I, I definitely could see that being a, a benefit and a you know, a marketing ploy of, hey, you can use Xeon because you already have it. You don't need to buy anything else and, and it can do these things over time. And But what about uh, what about the Gaudi 2? Is it actually competitive with NVIDIA? Yeah, that's another result that Intel is touting here. And um, I guess the answer is it depends. Um, NVIDIA absolutely um, wipes the floor with every competitor when it comes to absolute performance. And H100, which is their latest offering, really, really shines. Um, I was in a, a NVIDIA briefing um, and spent some time uh, asking some questions and, and poking at it. And I got to say, um, NVIDIA has an absolutely killer uh, ML training platform with H100. Um, and it's not just H100. That's the thing. It's H100 combined with a lot of the other things that NVIDIA has. So you may have heard of their Grace and their Hopper combination called, yes, Grace Hopper, um, that allows you to build basically a massive uh, distributed CPU and GPU complex interconnected with uh, NVIDIA's technologies like NVLink and yes, InfiniBand, which of course NVIDIA also owns now. Um, and and the, the combination was just absolutely unbeatable. Um, H100 is um, three times faster um, than anything else on the market. Uh, NVIDIA talked about uh, basically a, a much, much lower footprint, even compared to A100, which was their previous um, offering. It's three times lower TCO than A100, five times fewer nodes, three and a half times less energy uh, to do the same work than A100. So yeah. NVIDIA absolutely kicks butt on MLPerf and kicks butt in the real world with CUDA and um, ML processing. But that being said, you know, NVIDIA has not been asleep here either. Um, the Habana Labs acquisition that they made was a sharp one and, and the Gaudi platform that they produced was pretty good. Now, Gaudi 2 is here. Uh, we actually got a sneak preview of this at a tech field day event, AI field day in fact. Um, and now it's here and we've got real results. And yes, Gaudi 2 is competitive, asterisk, with NVIDIA A100, which is the previous generation NVIDIA product. Um, that doesn't, that sounds like damning with faint praise, but actually uh, that's not because um, in, in, Intel's offering this product at competitive pricing, um, it absolutely does perform well. It's really great. Uh, one of the things that Gaudi 2 has is um, a lot of high bandwidth memory. Um, it's got 96 gigs of HBM, which is more than um, competitors have. Um, another thing that in Intel's doing that I love with the Gaudi platform is that they're using standard Ethernet. Um, now, when I say standard Ethernet, I mean 24 100 gigabit Ethernet links per card for inter interlink. So that's not your father's 
Ethernet, but it is actually your father's Ethernet. And, and that's something different from what NVIDIA is doing. So essentially, um, Intel, Habana, Gaudi 2 absolutely is a competitive ML training platform and probably cheaper, uh, probably more accessible. I know that uh, NVIDIA has been slammed trying to deliver the H100. Um, so yeah, Intel has a pretty good product on their hands too. I'm glad to hear you say that because really having that strong competition is going to do nothing but uh, bring out more innovation in the future as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining me uh, this week on the, the rundown, uh, Tim. Uh, before I get on to the week ahead, um, tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and where people can hear more from you. Definitely. I am on Twitter at Tim Bertino can also find me at Art of Network Engineering. We put out a podcast every other week. We also have a, uh, a new podcast as part of the family called Cables to Clouds uh, by the same name on, on Twitter that uh, releases in the weeks that uh, the Art of Network Engineering doesn't release. So you can find us all there. Excellent. Uh, and I definitely, de definitely recommend the Art of Network Engineering. It is a really first-class networking podcast. Thanks for, for, for producing that. Before we go, let's take a look at the week ahead. As I mentioned, Tom Hollingsworth is in here because he's producing Security Field Day right now, uh, June 28th, 29th. Um, go to techfieldday.com, go to Tech Field Day on LinkedIn, watch the live stream of Security Field Day right now. Uh, also, we'll be back next month with Networking Field Day, um, the end of July, last week in July. Uh, go to techfieldday.com to learn more about the presenters at Networking Field Day. And um, as you probably guessed, we will be back with uh, Edge Field Day, uh, AI Field Day, Data Field Day, Storage Field Day, all these topics in um, Q3 and Q4. And we're going to be announcing those dates real soon. Thanks for watching the Gestalt IT Rundown. You can catch new episodes every Wednesday as a YouTube video or on your favorite podcast application. We'll be back next Wednesday to talk about all of the IT news of the week that was. Until then, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, and of course, for Tim Bertino, and all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours a great Caps Lock Day.